Welcome, welcome again to another rendition of Welcome to Fatherhood Interviews. My name is Sir Royce Bialis, and I'm with my prestigious co-host, Dr. Ryan Young. How's it going, my brother? Doing well, man. How you doing? Ah, doing very well, man. No complaints over here. I'm also pleased to announce we have a special guest, Bill Davis. How's it going? I'm doing very well. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, brothers. Yeah, so yeah, for sure, man. This is definitely an honor for you to jump on with us. Uh, so, uh, Bill, uh, let me ask you, uh, how many kids you got? Uh, what are the ages? And also, what do you do for a living and for a purpose? Okay. Uh, I'll start with the last question first. Uh, I teach. I teach African-American history. And so for a living as well as for a purpose, um, although I should say that the purpose would be to use some of the information that I've learned about work with organizations, how to improve things in the community. And uh, my children, in fact, so when you, when the opportunity came up to join the call, as I was telling Raheem earlier that uh, I'm just coming back from traveling, my daughter had her 35th birthday celebration uh, yesterday. And so <clears throat> she's next to the youngest. So my oldest son's name is Sekou. I had the privilege of meeting the former president of um, Guinea, Sekou Touré. So that was a factor for him. He's 39. Um, my second oldest is named Toussaint. He's named in honor of Toussaint Louverture, who helped to liberate the Haitians from the French. He's 37. Mani is my daughter that just had her birthday yesterday. She's 35. And my youngest is Naima. She's 33. So uh, where are you traveling to? Where, where, where are you located? I live in New Jersey and uh, raised my children in New Jersey. And um, in fact, last week would make it 30 years that I've been a single dad. And so when I started my single father journey, they were three, five, seven, and nine. And um, so 30 years later, I'm happy to report that everybody's doing well. My daughter decided to have her birthday celebration in Mexico. So we're traveling back from, from Mexico. A little sun and sand um, was really, really beautiful. And uh, see her doing well now. A couple of years ago, the pandemic had a, a significant negative impact on her emotionally. And so to see her two years later doing much better has been a profound blessing. Well, that's great. That's great. So can you talk about your experience as um, a single father? Oh, absolutely. Um and, and and a shameless plug, brothers. Let me let me. Uh, so Raheem said, "Did you read?" I said, "Yeah, I gotta go get my gotta go get something." So I wrote a book about it, Baba and the Crew: True Story of a Single Black Father's Journey to Redemption. Uh, the book came out a year and a half ago, and so um, I was married for nine years, and my former wife and I had these four amazing children, and. Um, but in 1991, 1992, there were some real challenges that we faced. And so um, when my children were much younger, I moved with the children from one part of New Jersey to another part of New Jersey. I could be close to work and where they would be enrolled in school. And uh, it was not popular. People in my family, a whole lot of people just um, did not think that it was a wise idea for me to raise these children. But um, I was quite determined that um, I, I, my conscience wouldn't rest because my former wife was dealing with some issues and I wasn't confident that she, her ability to take care of them. And so I would, my spirit wouldn't rest having to wonder whether they being well taken care of. And I didn't want to split up. I didn't want some going to this person, some going to that person. And so um, I applaud my former wife in, in acknowledging the fact that it, although it, it took some time to recognize that she'll be better with me. And um so I was raised close to here. I went to Rutgers University, which is close to here. And so my network, as far as being able to help to build a village around the children, was um, better here. I was trying to move to my, where my mom lived in North Carolina at the time. But, um, but the universe worked it out for me to stay in New Jersey. And, um, and so part of the, the um, realization that I came to was that I had to find a way to build a village around my children. And so that proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. It's like, but sometimes we have to build the village that we want. And it may not necessarily be easy, but it's um, the most contagious way to go because 
the children are going to benefit by being with other children who are moving in the same direction that they're moving in. And the other families want to know that their children are being in the presence of children who are going the direction that they want them to go in. And uh, fortunately, there were um, a group of families, you know, we kind of all, you know, huddled up together and figured out a way to uh, support each other and encourage each other. And, you know, um, I used to tell people we have a hell of a village. And so uh, the children who were part of that village, fortunately, are doing fairly well in their lives now. So I'm happy to report that, um, you know, we were able to overcome obstacles and barriers and all the other challenges that go along, particularly when children get to teenage years. That's, uh, so I don't know if you brothers have children that are teenagers, because I heard, I heard Raheem said, yeah, we were about two, five years ago, you know, this one had a child, that had a child. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> when the children get to the teenage years, that's a whole other level of conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm not there. Yeah, I have two <laughs> so you already know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting, Bill. We uh we have uh I guess similar stories. Uh, I got divorced. My kids were uh two, four, and eight. They're now four, six, and ten now. Um, how long did it take for you to really like adjust to to being a single father after the split happened? Well, it took a while. Um. Only in the sense that, um, like, I was there from the time they were born. And so from the time they came into the world to the time we came, uh, I became a single dad, um, I was always present. And so, you know, and I was actively involved in stuff that was taking place at home. So my children were, were you know, comfortable or acknowledged my, the role that I had in the house. And uh, but we were moving. Um, my daughter, Imani, whose birthday was just yesterday. So we were moving from the house that we lived in. I used to live in North before I moved to where I live now. And uh, so she said, where's mommy's room going to be? Not recognizing that her mother, mother wasn't coming. And um, emotionally, it took her, it was the hardest on because since the, my sons were older, she was a middle child, first daughter. The one that her her mother had always dreamed of, like let's see, I want a baby girl, this and that. Uh, so it took her a long time to adjust to it. But um, one of the things that was, and I don't really know how I I came, you know, to this understanding. I used to listen to parent shows, read different things and stuff like that. But then I really became clear that the more consistent you are about what you expect, this is for the children to follow. And so I was very clear about, okay, this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing, and set up a menu for while they were eating breakfast. I was making dinner because all of them played sports and different kind of activities. So we came back from school and have a lot of time. So I had a pretty structured approach to how things should work. And, um, you know, the, they were um, sometimes hesitant or resistant, but when they realized that I wasn't really going to deviate from, you know, what I thought we needed to do. And, um, and I had older nieces and nephews. And I watched my sisters raise their children. And there were things that I thought that they did well, things that I felt that I should do different. Because, you know, when the children are young, then, you know, they think they know more than they actually know. And so at a certain time, you know, they have a lot to say, even though they don't have very much information. And so I, I leave some space for some conversation. But at the end of the day, you know, um, somebody's got to make a decision. And that ultimately is going to be me because if something doesn't work right, then it's going to reflect on me rather than you. So I'm I'm going to go in the direction I think is the best. We can have a conversation about it. And I'll try to help you understand why I'm going to have to make certain kind of decisions. But at the end of the day, my conscience ain't going to be right if I know that I allowed you to, you know, convince me to do something. So the Chiefs may have lost the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl because Mahomes convinced the coach not to kick the field goal. Right. So listen, at the at the end of the half, if they kick the field goal, they're much they're further ahead than they would have been, right? And I you brothers might have been cheering for Cincinnati. I don't know. But you know, Mahomes the only brother in there, like I'm cheering for him. Like, all right, let's see this brother go ahead and get back to the Super Bowl. Even though I'm conflicted about watching because of Catholic, of course. But I'm like, you know, but there are times where people are gonna to have to make decisions and then, you know, whoever is responsible is the person that has to deal with whatever those consequences are. And so, um, but it was, it took a minute. It took a minute for them. It took a minute for me. But um, we were 
fortunate that, um, you know, just like, all right, somehow we're going to get this done, whatever it takes. Do you ever feel, do you ever feel like you were discriminated against because you were a single dad? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And so, you know, when I would show up at the back to the school meetings, you know, for the parent teacher conferences, all that kind of stuff, you know, teachers looking at me like, yo, where's the mom at? Right. And then, well, no, I'm, I'm the person who's going to be here to represent them. You know, uh, there was always that. And I, and I tell people all the time, you know, um, one of the things I was really conscious of was that I didn't want diapers knocking at my door. So I was very transparent, right? I'm raising these children and I want to make sure that everybody's on the same page about what I expect from them. You know, fortunately, they were pretty smart. So they were always on the honor roll. So when I'd go to the school and tell the teacher, you know, my teacher, students have been on the honor roll with them. Some of the teachers got intimidated by me making that statement. And so, you know, but I was always open with the school, with people in the village, you know, because my daughters needed women role models. And so, you know, I didn't want anybody to be suspicious or uncomfortable. And then, you know, when it was time for sleepovers, all that kind of stuff, I was incredibly gratified that there were families who let their daughters spend the night at our home with my daughters. And so, you know, but I think that sometimes when we get to a certain point, we try to shield rather than be open. And I think that when you shield and not engage, I mean, so clearly there were people who felt that, you know, it would have been better for the children to be with their moms. I had to hear that, you know, consistently for, it took even my mother, it took her a few years before she finally said, you did the right thing. I mean, you know, the children being with you is the best thing that could have happened. And so when she said that, I finally, I, that whole concern about whether or not, you know, uh, people understood why I had to do what I had to do. And so, but at a certain point, yeah, you're always going to face that, that, you know, critique and those questions about whether or not you are, as a father, are doing the best thing for the benefit of your children. <laughs> These are my children, so I'm going to do whatever I think is best for them. I'm not going to try in any way to impede or, or harm them, you know, but it's just the society has these narratives that are hard to change. And so, you know, we're swimming upstream, you know, sometimes, particularly being Black men. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons that people would see me. I mean, so we'd go to community events and people would ask me, why, why don't you write a book? How come you're not on talk shows, this and that? Because, you know, we see with your children all the time. And so that, you know, I was flattered to hear that. And, uh, but it was a factor for me recognizing that, yes, you know, I do need to document the fact that, you know, there are brothers who are actively involved in their children's lives, who can raise healthy children and who can be actively, you know, participate in stuff in the community. And, um, and, you know, I'm just gratified that, you know, um, to finally get the book done, to finally, you know, have opportunities to have conversations. And the work that your brother's doing is important. I mean, you know, we need more conversations. The Black family has been facing challenges from the time Europeans brought us here. And so, um, you know, having conversations, better understanding among ourselves is critical. And so the platform that you've created to be able to work with, with brothers and families to talk about, you know, what can we do collectively? It's, there's, you know, not a, not enough avenues, at least I haven't found enough avenues for that to happen in a wholesome and constructive form. Can you speak to your experience, your experience with uh, being an educator and how has that helped you as a father? Oh, immensely, immensely. Um, and I, you know, there, I had two, um, I've had some great mentors in my life. And so my first two were my track coaches in middle school and high school. And, um, because in school, I had a lot, I was a problem child in school. I got kicked out of school all the time. You know, there were beefs with other guys all the time. And so, you know, getting on the track team and the discipline of the track team, I, I had, one of the track coaches, man, we would run two miles. We would do 100 sit-ups, 100 push-ups to run two miles before school, then go to track practice after school. And um, I had the good fortune in middle school to go to the Penn Relays. And when I saw the Penn Relays, I was like, what? And so I made a conscious decision that I'm, I'm going to run in this. And, I mean, there were some phenomenal athletes on our track team. I mean, just phenomenal athletes in school, period, but some really talented guys on the track team. So, And if you lost, people was laughing at you. So I, I put the work in, man. Like, listen, I'm going to put the work in. 
I'm not having anybody really laugh at me. Oh, you got a smoke, you know. So, uh, but we had some really good guys, man. So we went to the Penn Relays my junior year. And, um, you know, and so my track coaches kept me away from the knuckleheads. I mean, so there were a lot of knuckleheads when I grew up, man. Guys getting high. I mean, some of the best athletes, man, their careers didn't go too far because they got messed up on either marijuana, cocaine, heroin, whatever it was. You know, I've seen all this kind of stuff for a long time. And so I became really clear about, you know, the consequences of what drugs could do to someone. And so I had a really good friend who, unfortunately, right now is, um, you know, facing some health challenges. But we made a pact. Listen, man, we ain't going to caught up with this foolishness. And we didn't. And so, um, you know, then when I um, got to college, um, the Black Power Movement was the tail end of the Black Power Movement was still happening. And so um, I was around some people who were culturally and politically conscious. And so, you know, that kind of kept me on the trajectory. I majored in, in African-American history in college. People asked, what are you going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is just something that touches my spirit. So I'm going to keep studying this. And um, and then fortunately, when I graduated, I started working at, at different colleges and universities. So my, my whole career has been in higher education. And so working in that arena, that I was really clear about what it takes for the benefit of my own children, right? And so, you know, how you have to have some structure. So I had a max of two hours of television a day. If they had a job, they had to, they could keep half the money, half the money went in the bank. So we're going to be clear about how we have to save to prepare to go to college. And it was any question about whether we're going to go. The question was where. And then because of, you know, student loan debt being what it is, what do we have to do to get some scholarship? You know, all of you are intelligent enough that we can actually get a scholarship so that your student loan situation is not crazy. And so I planted those seeds really early. And, uh, you know, they would get money for being on the honor roll. We'd go have, <clears throat> you know, wherever they wanted to go eat, we'd go get a special meal for them being on the honor roll. But for all of them, and particularly since my sons were the oldest, and for black boys, then athletics seems to be take a high priority than academics. But you got to go on the honor roll to play. And I would tell their coaches that. Coach, they can be on the team. But if they're not on an honor roll, they can practice, but they can't play. So now, aside from what I'm telling them, their coaches reinforcing that, yo, so we want you to game, man. So make sure you keep your academics on track. And so our children are learning very early what our messages for them are. It's important to have other people reinforce that message in their own way so that then the children get their message from several different people. And so when the coaches are telling them, you got to be on the honor roll, then, you know, if you, did you do your homework? That reinforces that, right, let me make sure I'm handling my situation here so that um, I can actually be out on the field or on the court. And uh, so it, it yielded, and the discipline of the sport, man, I mean, it's because you play the team sport. So we, the country emphasizes individualism. But in reality, when you play the team sport, you have to do what's best for the team, not so much what's best for you. And so in that, that work ethic, and that discipline is something that, you know, fortunately was beneficial for them as well. Can you, um, can you talk about your relationship with your father? Growing oh, up? yeah. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate. My father was in my life. Um, my father, my father, neither my father or mother graduated from high school. But even though they didn't graduate from high school, they emphasized education. My father was a World War II veteran and talked about discrimination in the, in the military when he was there. And so, you know, um, and my father, his father died when he was really young. So he always had a vision in his head of how a father should be. My mother had a child before my mother and father were married. And my father raised all of us as his own children. And so there wasn't, this is my half sister, this is my sister, this is my brother. You know, we didn't have any of those, you know, my by sister by another father, mother, it was any of that kind of conversation. We were just one, one family. But my father um, was a professional gambler. So I see my father went to school in the morning, but I didn't see him again to the next morning. And so, um, you know, I was the middle son, I mean, the middle child, first son. I was named in that after my father. And so my father had high expectations for me. And, you know, as I explained earlier, I had real my grades were good, but my behavior was out of order in school. So I got kicked out of school, had detentions, parent-teacher conferences, all that stuff was going on. It wasn't until much later that I understood. I had a, had a brother who unfortunately passed away a year younger than me who had asthma. 
And so because of his health condition, he was really frail growing up. And so he got all the all the sympathy. I got all the heat. And so, uh, you know, it's which is why participating in sports and community events became really important to me because that's where I got my positive reinforcement from. Like, okay, bet. If I'm out here on the track running with the guys and the coaches are encouraging me that I can do better, do better, do better, then um, it's giving me the positive reinforcement that I needed. And so, um, and the only time that my, my mother came to see me was when I ran independence. All the other times, but at least she got to see what was the athletic highlight of my sports career. Um, but so, but my father would take us to New York. So, you know, he loved going to the city. We'd go watch a movie, we'd go get something to eat. We, you know, we'd go on family trips. Sunday was family day. So we'd go all over the place. And when I was um, very young, I think I was either 14, maybe 13 or 14, my father sent me and both my sisters to Germany. His brother stayed in Germany at the end of World War II. And so um, I'm getting exposed to, you know, international situation at a very early age. And so, um, so my father, my interest in world affairs and all that kind of stuff came from my father. My interest in African-American history and community stuff came from my mother. And so if we live long enough and you know, engage our parents well enough, we can understand certain elements that contribute to who we become because there's lessons that each of them are going to give us. Some will accept, some will reject. So my, my father was a Martin Luther King fan. My mother was a Malcolm X fan. And so in the house, there's this whole conversation about Malcolm and Martin and, you know, why can't we just get along? No, we need some black nationalism. And uh, so, you know, I think that when we are fortunate, we have people around us who kind of will say stuff that will provoke us. My mother gave my first Malcolm X record when I was in middle school. Because I was listening to the message to the grassroots and I was like 13 years old. This brother is saying something for real right here. <laughs> Uh, are um, are both of your parents from the South or were they from uh, New Jersey? My, both are from New Jersey. My mother was born. So New Jersey is um, a real interesting contrast. So it's the most urbanized state in the country, right? It's the third smallest state, but we have nine million people to live in the state. So we've got way more people to live in the whole North Carolina, South Carolina. They don't have nearly the population of New Jersey, even though they may be four or five times the size. And so, but in the southern part of the state where my mother was from, it was very rural. And so my mother was the seventh out of 14 children. Her parents were basically sharecroppers. They had their own land. They would grow their own food. They would can their own food. So my mother eventually decided to leave there and go to Newark, where she met my father. My father was born and raised in northern New Jersey. And so, you know, northern New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey is the largest city in New Jersey. You got Newark, Jersey City, you got a whole lot of urban areas in the northern part of the state. And so um, but all of us were born in New Jersey, raised in New Jersey. I did live in New York for a period of time. But, um, but you know, New Jersey has been home, although I'm hoping to, uh, to expand out internationally. Um, our, our preference would be to live part-time in Barbados. I'm working on that right now to see if I can figure out a way to make that become a reality. So you mentioned the similarities between uh, yourself, your, your parenting style in regards to the emphasis on education and also your, your parents and your dad. Um, what what would you say would be a difference between uh, how your dad was and how you were as a dad? You had to point one thing out that was different between you two. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, for one, um, one of the lessons that I learned from my father was A, to pay attention, but B, you know, he would delegate to my mom. I didn't have anybody to delegate to. Yeah. And so my my mother and father did a good cop, bad cop routine. So my father would tell stuff that he wanted done to my mom. My mom would be the enforcer to make it work. If we didn't do it, then my father, I got so many beatings growing up, and diapers would have been at my house. I got beat with all kinds of stuff. Punishment all the time, right? So, um, but because... It was just me and my children. Then whatever had to be done, I had to find a way to communicate it to them. I had to be the, I couldn't, I didn't have anybody to delegate to like, all right, this is what we're doing. So when it's time to do yard work, 
whatever it is, it's time to clean up the house. When it's time to do whatever those chores are, let's let's get it done. I mean, so when I was raised, that's what we had to do. We had chores either daily or minimally weekly that we had to do around the house. So my children had chores. Listen, we all live here, so we all have to clean up. We got to participate in keeping our home front where we want it to be. And, you know, we have a yard. We got to cut the grass. We got to rake up leaves. You know, we got to do all these things. And so, um, you know, so maintaining a certain level of expectation about how things should go was certainly something that um, I inherited from, particularly from my, just my mom was the enforcer, but my father was the one who planted the seeds. Uh, how do you, I guess, like looking at your background, uh, how do you perceive the current state of Black America? Well, we're in trouble. <laughs> we we we've been in trouble for a minute. Right. And I just I mean one of the one of the um we've survived a lot of stuff, right? So when you think about the hundreds of years that our ancestors brought here enslaved, the hundreds of years that we were enslaved, the hundred years that Jim Crow and all the other crazy stuff that happened after 1865 with slavery technically when the Civil War was over, slavery was supposedly ended. So really if you look at all of those variables, if you go from 1865 to 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was actually passed, that would be the first time in the history of the country that we had our full citizenship rights, would be 1965. And now, you know, um, there are primarily Republicans who are trying to take those voting rights and our, those citizenship rights away. And so, but despite all of that, we've been able to, I mean, if you think about what happened to the indigenous people commonly called Indians who could not survive the, the diseases and the violence and all stuff that Europeans perpetrated against them. So we've survived all of that stuff. But one of the things that has happened to us is that our self-esteem has taken a profound beating. Our ability to be able to recognize ourselves as a collective group has taken a profound beating. And so when the civil rights movement was happening with Martin and Malcolm were on the scene. And, you know, people view that as like the, the you know, a high mark, right? A high water mark that we were able to really. And I mean, when you think about it, in 10 years from 1955, when Emmett Kill was till, killed and the Rosa Parks sat down and Montgomery Bus Park car started to 1965, when the Voting Rights Act is passed and the Civil Rights Bill is passed, then we saw in a 10-year period of time overturning 100 years of Jim Crow. So, I mean, with those sisters and brothers face, with the hoses, the dogs, the tear gas, all that kind of stuff was just absolutely incredible. And so, but we've been kind of confused. Do we want integration? Integration has been consciously something that we thought we really wanted. And, and I'm saying that it's something that we should have access to. But by the same token, it's really hurt us economically. And so when you look at all the businesses that are closed, because we spend, and I'm, I'm just, let me ask you brothers as a question. How much out of every dollar do black folks spend with black owned businesses? So if you got one dollar or a hundred dollars, how much do we spend with black owned businesses? Say uh twenty percent. Twenty percent? Raheem, what did you say? Uh maybe two or three percent. Two percent is right. We spend two cents of every dollar with a Black-owned business. And so, so Roy said, we could get it to 20%. We could hire a million Black people and have to ask nobody for that. We have $1.6 to $1.8 trillion. There's only eight countries in the world that have more money than the African-American community in the United States. But we are the community that spends least money. The Jews, Italians, Latins, every other group turns the money over between two and 12 times before it leaves their community. Ours is two cents of every dollar we spend with a Black-owned business. And so it becomes real important for us to recognize that while we may have the right to vote, even though they're trying to challenge it, or we may have other kind of civil rights, economic, we've never gotten reparations, we've never received the floor that most immigrants come here with. And so when, when people from Asia and China and different parts of the world come here, they come with their culture and they come with the resources. Since we didn't come with our culture, we didn't come with any financial resources, we've been having to rebuild. And there's a couple of things that I hope that, that folks who have watched this will read, particularly in this moment. 
there's <clears throat> a sister who teaches at Emory University named Carol Anderson. She wrote a book called White Rage. And in the book, she documents that every time we make progress, there are laws, particularly by white folks, to take us back. And so when we look at what's taking place in the country now, the fool that just got put out of the White House was only able to get there because there were a large group of whites who were uncomfortable having a black president. And so that's what made Trump able to win, that he galvanized all this racism. And so the January 6th attack on the Capitol last year is just a manifestation of the fact that, you know, there are people who still are not ready for a quote unquote multicultural, multiracial country. And so, you know, it's, that's the work that we have to do. We have to make sure that we understand that when we make progress, that when we have, so in 2020, right, not only does Biden win, but then Warnock wins in Georgia, right? Just before that, in the 2016 election, Stacey Abrams got cheated out of being a governor in Georgia. And then um, the brother of uh, Gillum got cheated out of being a governor in Florida. And so the last four years since those elections have taken place, they've used every, every weapon they have in order to limit our ability to go vote. And so it's not a surprise that, you know, we find ourselves going through this. So are we going to vote our way to equality or equity? Are we going to be able to financially leverage ourselves to financial equity? I mean, to equity. And so those are some of the issues that we've been wrestling with for a long time. And there isn't any one right or wrong answer. I think we need to use all of those tools, but we haven't figured out, we don't have um, a co comprehensive or collective strategy for how to do it. And so we have individual communities, like the current mayor of North, Raz Barak is doing a great job. I mean, you know, he's got some real challenges, one of the poorest cities in the state, but he's come up with um, an a plan so that the poorest families, or at least like 2,000 poorest families in Newark, can get a guaranteed income. There are several other cities that have modeled the plan that he's put out. And so when we think about how do we help families, I mean, so if we're going to talk about parenting, there's a huge gap between poor families when they send their children to school and middle-class families that send their children to school. There's a 10 to 20,000 word gap that middle-class and affluent children have over poor families. And so it's not a surprise that we see children in poor communities not excel academically. And then there are businesses, primarily prisons, that look at test scores at the fourth and fifth grade. If Raheem can't read by the fourth and fifth grade, Raheem is likely to cause some chaos in the community. So they build, they make their estimation for who's going to prison based on test scores in the fourth and fifth grade. Because if the children are doing well late elementary school, then they may hang out in school for a period of time, but it's already clear that at some point they're going to leave. And so there's some very fundamental work that has to happen in order for our community to be raised to the level that it needs to be. Do you have any uh, examples of how you uh, explain that to your kids, like growing up? Like, uh, mm -hmm. I remember like, uh, like watching the Cosby show, like seeing like uh, how he broke down, like here's a hundred dollars, you know, like uh, this is what happens when you, pay your bills, I take this 20, take this 50, like you really broke it down. Like, did you have any similar similar type stories or any experiences like that teaching your kids about uh, the black dollar? Mm -hmm. um, and so there'll be certain places that we, we would not go and shop. Mm -hmm. and there's still certain places that I discourage them to, to support. I mean, so, you know, the guy that owns Home Depot is a Trump supporter. And so we need to be really clear about, okay. And so we, we had these debates about, you know, what shows to watch, right? So we come into the Cosby show. Then, you know, we're going to watch Black-owned shows because of the fact that we're supporting Black people to have jobs. And so if I, when we look at the reality of who's represented, and then, you know, if you talk to your children, my oldest son, when he was in elementary school, some white girl in the class liked him, one of the white boys in the class, oh, you can't like him because he's not like us, right? So our children, if they're in integrated environments, are going to face so about the same son, him and some of his friends who were white at the time, riding bikes, they stopped at the building, throwing rocks at the building, breaking the windows. The cops show up and I instruct them, do not run from the cops because I don't want you to have to be beat up, shot, or anything else. So the white kids get away. My son doesn't. And so it helps to clarify that, look, we have to be really clear about A, who we interact with, B, 
what we choose to do and see how we spend our money. Because if we don't do those things, we're not going to see the change we want to see. And so when they have their own experience in how they get treated differently than other children, then it helps to reinforce the message about why we need to be specific about how we spend money, what we do with it, where we go. And we lead by example. So I'm fortunate that there are Black-owned businesses around to go and support. In fact, there's a there's a documentary, not even a documentary. It's, just, it's a short video clip of a sister named Maggie Anderson, who is somewhere out in, in Illinois, somewhere out that way. Um, you familiar with her? She wrote a book called Our Black Year. And so her and her husband both had MBAs from, you know, prestigious universities. They made a decision to only spend money with Black-owned businesses for a year. And so, you know, if you Google her name and put Maggie Anderson in, you know, CNN, she's on CNN, she's on all the different shows and talking to her. They had two little children, how to go to a Black-owned gas station, a Black-owned grocery store, Black-owned cleaners, everything, Right. And how much effort it took in order to be able to do it, just to buy from toys, from Black-owned stores. And so I think that when our children see that, you know, fortunately, there were Black-owned restaurants close by here. There were other kind of businesses that I could take my children to. So they got a chance to see what I, I'm not just, this is not a concept. This is reality, you know, what we're going to do, how we're going to spend our money. And um, so, you know, it's our conversation is one thing. My mother used to say, one of her famous sayings is, words are magnificent, but deeds are divine. I like that. I write <laughs> that one down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the lady you just brought up, uh, was it Maggie Anderson? Mm-hmm. She's, um, she's in Chicago. She's from Chicago. Right. And um, I remember the documentary, well, the clip that um, that you spoke of, that cleaners that she went to was in uh, Maywood. That's where um, me and Sir Royce, you know, grew up. But it okay. is, uh, it closed down. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's what she said. How many businesses that she started the experiment with closed down by the time, either before it finished or right after? Yeah. 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 And that's part of the challenge. I mean, you know, that we don't support the business enough in order for the, and that's one of the reasons there's an Ethiopian restaurant, African restaurant that I go to once a week, because I want them to know, listen, you know, I'm coming, I'm bringing whoever I can with me because I want to make sure that you guys stay open. And after the pandemic, there were so many businesses. We talk about the health consequences of the pandemic. There were so many businesses that closed because of the pandemic. The economic fallout has been incredible. And so, you know, businesses, there are two black owned restaurants, 10 minutes from my house both of whom were able to survive the pandemic. And I'm absolutely phenomenally grateful for that. Because, you know, if we're really going to try to do the community to uplift, then we have to have some, some people that have businesses that can support us. And so, you know, with King and the Civil Rights Movement, they had restaurants they would go to to have their planning meetings, right? They had restaurants in New Orleans, Atlanta, they had all over the place where they would go have their planning meetings. And so, you know, if we're really serious about it, then the, the entrepreneurs in the community it's beneficial to them to support the activists in the community because at the end of the day, we're all trying to get white supremacy away from us so that we can raise our families and live peaceably without any kind of police brutality, other kind of issues that are subject to happen to us. Okay. Um, so the, the next question I had was in regards to, you know, raising... <laughs> Daughters versus raising sons. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say, in your experience, was the biggest difference, or or, um, you know, uh, the biggest difference between you know having sons and daughters in your household? I I appreciate that question, and and it took me a long time to recognize that I had two sets of rules that I should not have had. So my sons are really clear. All right, listen. If you violate what I'm telling you to do, there's going to be some consequences. It may be punishment, or it may be that you're going to have to handle some of the physical challenges that come along with deciding that you want to do something different. But with my daughters, I didn't. And so my youngest daughter really pushed the envelope way too far. And that's when I realized that had this been my son, we would have handled this very differently, right? But then the emotional behavior of girls the, the things that girls need, right? They got to have 
pants and skirts. They got to have this and that, right? This is not just one thing or the other. Hair, nails, all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, just the the emotional and, and uh, other things that are needed, the accoutrements that are needed for, for girls are incredible. And so, um, and I hope that, you know, if you have daughters, that either there's somebody in the family or some people in the community that are going to help your daughters to see what's possible for them. And, um, but yeah, I had two sets of rules and it wasn't until my daughter was a teenager that I finally realized I can't afford to do this anymore, that I'm going to have to hold them accountable so I help my sons accountable. And when they finally realized that I wasn't going to do that anymore, they straightened the hell up. But up until then, they, you know, use the, the girl kind of, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, when it's like, all right, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. And you know, if your brothers were doing this, I would handle this very differently. And when they finally recognize, all right, uh, it's time for me to make sure that I'm heeding this information. Um, so, yeah, so they come up for you, they give you hugs, they write you little notes and make pictures, and that kind of stuff, all that is really cool. When they get to them teenage years, trying to bend the rules and running some some scams, then uh, <laughs> that's what it's like, really. We got to rein you in. <laughs> when you say your youngest daughter pushed the envelope, what uh, what did she do? Oh man, um, so <laughs> I was oh sure, um, I was fortunate that um, I could always find some kind of you know car for my children to drive, and it wasn't always it was you know we first learned how to drive, so for my daughter. She was old enough to drive, so she had a car. You drive to school, and, you know, you give explicit directions. Do not let anybody else drive your car, right? She didn't listen to that, so she let loan her car to a guy who went to school with her who had a very shaky reputation. My daughter, younger daughter, who's not old enough to drive, hasn't any experience driving, convinces him to let her drive. And so he listens to her. They're driving, and there's some children playing. And so fortunately for my daughter and those children, to avoid running into those children, she ran into a neighbor's yard and crashed into a tree. Mm. Right? Now, that's some of the guy that says whooping behind that, right? No question. We'll have no conversation about it. But I did, right? I'm going to two sets of policies here. Right. And so then to her and her friends sneak off, go to the beach. And so they were, she, you know, pushed the, I mean, and so she pushed the envelope to the point that there had to be some consequences. And so, you know, they're going to, they're going to see how much they can get away with. I mean, that's, that's what children to some degree, that's their role. Like, I'm going to see how much I can get away with. And as long as I can get away with it, then, you know, I'm going to continue to do it. And when they finally realize they can't get away with it anymore, it's like, okay, it's time for me to, um, do the right thing. And so uh, so we finally, we had a rough patch, but we worked it out. Was was there a difference in the way that you talked to them about dating? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and they, they would be the first ones to say, well, you know, you don't have those, sons don't bring the children home, right? You don't have to, I wasn't worried about my sons getting raped. I wasn't worried about them being molested, right? That wasn't, any kind, right? So as a dad, like, look, I hear dudes at the gym. I know the kind of crazy stuff that dudes will try, right? And so, yeah, you can definitely believe that I'm going to be as protective as I can be because if something happens to you, then, you know, I'm going to feel like I didn't do what I was supposed to do, protect you. And so, yes, there's going to be some, when they went to the prom, no, 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 there ain't no after prom activities, it's time to come on home, right? And I know you may not like that, but that's the reality of how this is going to happen. And so, yes, you got to have really clear conversation and expectations, and they're going to be disappointed about the fact that you may be, quote, unquote, too protective. But I'm going to be over rather than under, right? I'm not going to have to worry about you being molested, abused, or missing, or you know, all, all the kind of crazy stuff that could happen. No, 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 no. We, we're not really like that. We're not really like that. And they eventually came to appreciate the fact that, you know, um, fortunately for them, that didn't happen. And you think about the crazy stuff that happens to some of our children, man. It's like, yo, you know, um, and we wonder why we have craziness in the neighborhood. You know, if the families are falling apart, parents may be working multiple jobs, then, you know, who's there really to make sure that the children are on track? 
And if they're not building a village around their children of other people who can help and support the parents as well as the children, then, you know, we have children, you know, raising themselves. I mean, so when Biggie and some of the other rappers talk about the fact, you know, that the parents are scared of them, there are parents that are scared of their children. And, you know, and to some degree, you know, if we allow ourselves as parents to be intimidated by our children, then, yeah, we're going to have a problem because now instead of us running the house, the children run in the house. And, you know, I was like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not going to happen here. My mom was five foot five. But when she was ready to whoop, you can believe you and didn't make how much bigger you might have been. It's time for you to get that whooping. So, you know, like, no, 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 no. One son, six, three, one son, six, six. Don't come in here with any disrespect. We, we are not, that is not going to be tolerated. And so that was one of the things, one of the early lessons, we're going to respect each other. And so our language, our behavior, respect is going to be one of the fundamental elements we have to have in order to be able to in a healthy environment. And so, you know, once they're clear, and that <clears throat> I'm not going to call you no crazy names. You're not going to call your sisters and brothers no crazy names. That's just not going to happen. That's just like we're going to find a more better, healthy way to communicate whatever frustration we have. So we used to have dinners around the table as, as many days as I could get it done. We'd have dinner around the table. When I sensed there was some tension between them, we would sit at the table until it was solved. Right? We're not, we're not leaving here until we get this issue resolved. Because, you know, if you think that somebody did something to you that was not correct and you're trying to plot and scheme, how you go, we're going to sit in until we get this worked out. And uh, so my older son, so he's my youngest, so my older son had, was multi-talented. He was smart, athletic, artistic, you know, at an early age. I mean, when he was eight, nine years old, he was going to national tournament championships. I mean, he was just incredibly gifted. And my youngest son was tall but didn't have much coordination. It took him a long time to really grow into his ability to be able to, you know, athletically and even academically be able to compete with his brother. So one time they were riding bikes and my youngest son fell off his bike and older brother laughed at him. And my youngest son came home. He was just steaming hot. He picked up something and threw it. Fortunately, just grazed my son, but didn't actually hit him in the eye. And so it was a lesson for my older son that, you know, instead of going to check if your brother was all right, you laugh at him, and so now he's really irritated to the point that he's trying to harm him. So there are going to be lessons that are going to be learned that, you know, um, as parents, we don't always be able to be in every instance to see it, but we have to make sure that those lessons are communicated so that we don't continue to make those mistakes in the future. All right. So, yeah, Bill, uh, next one I have for you is actually a question I already asked. Uh, before you came on, it was, uh, what does fatherhood mean to you? You gave me a real short and sweet answer. It's real good. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. It says, uh, awesome journey with many challenges and blessings. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit more on that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I am incredibly grateful to be a father. And I really um, value the the love that we have in our family. And, but, you know, there are within the household, within the community, and definitely within the country, you know, um, challenges that we have to overcome. And so, you know, there are going to be times when children have self-esteem problems. They may not necessarily always believe that they're capable of doing certain kind of things. And they may compare themselves to other children that may be either smarter, more talented or whatever than they think that they are. And so then, you know, you have to consistently reinforce the fact that they're on their own journey and that at some point they're going to accomplish whatever the goal is that they're intending to do. It may require more effort. You may have to use a little creative creativity about how you get it done, but, you know, you have to help the children to overcome sometimes their own lack of self-confidence. But when they finally, and the same thing what I'm teaching, when you, when that aha moment happens, it was like, oh, now I finally got it. I figured it out, right? I've accomplished whatever it is that I was intending to do. Then, um, you know, it's um, it's just, you know, those are the blessings. Like, okay. And so then, you know, when, I mean, so yesterday, <clears throat> really from last week, there were over 20 people that went to Mexico to celebrate my daughter's birthday in the middle of a pandemic 
with all the challenges of flying, all the crazy stuff happening in the world. There were over 20 people that came to celebrate her birthday. And one of the common um, comments that were made by some of her friends was the fact that, you know, how much she has shared with them and how much she's helped them to get through some of the challenges that they face. And so my daughter has a very generous spirit and, you know, has fortunately had, you know, accomplished a lot in the, in the young stages of her life that have touched people in a way that they're willing to not, in addition to that, pay their way to get there, right? And pay to stay. And so, um, so then at, when we see our children accomplish stuff, possibly even greater than we anticipated they were capable of accomplishing, then it's like, wow, you know, it's, uh, you know, and so I was the only one, I had two sisters, one of my brothers passed away, I had two brothers. I was the only one to graduate from college. And so I know that for my, for my parents, it was, they didn't think I was going to do it, right? Given all the problems I had in school before, that it didn't seem likely that I would go to college and much less graduate. <laughs> so there are going to be times like, oh, man, you know, my child actually did this. <laughs> and so, you know, those are the redemptive things that happen, man. And then I have an eight-year-old granddaughter. And so Baba's us will heal work for father. And so that's what my children call me. So I asked my son, what are you going to have your daughter call you? And so you're going to have her call you Baba. You're going to have her call you something else. So he's he's going with the dad that I was like, okay, then then she she calls me Baba as well. My children's friends call me Baba. And so I am, you know, just profoundly pleased with the fact that um, you know, there have been lives that have been touched in a way that, you know, has been uplifting to them as well as to myself. And so um it's just um in the same way that, you know, we think of what our parents had to be like, my parents lived through the Great Depression, right? Either your parents or grandparents lived through the Great Depression. Somebody in the, in, the, in the family lineage lived through Jim Crow, right? I mean, so we start to think about the stuff that our families had to face in order for us to be where we are now. We used to take long drives. And I said, listen, I ain't worried about y'all crying or whining back there. Harriet Tubman walked under the threat of death this far. So, you know, you just got to just relax, <laughs> man, we're not getting as fast as you want. We're gonna get there, but in the meantime, I want you to you know, remember this lesson that when we're driving through, Harry Tubman was walking with people looking to kill him. So you know, let's just calm down. It's good stuff, man. Um, I have one last question. I know we're getting close to time, um, so I want to ask you uh, about Don Imus. All right. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> he paid the <a> price. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the real the real question is, um, uh, what sacrifices do you feel like um, you've made having you know being a, a single dad? And um, do your well, it's kind of a twofold question. Do, do your kids? Um, how do they acknowledge those sacrifices? Um, so, yes, yes. Financially, emotionally, there are different ways you go make a sacrifice as a parent. And as a single parent, it becomes even more complicated because of the fact that, you know, you have to, you're going to wonder, did I do too much or not enough, right? Is, am I, are my expectations too high? Did I give them the help and support that they need? Did, you know, I, I find all the things that we need in order for them to be able to accomplish what I hope that they want to accomplish. And, you know, I was, I'm an educator in the public, public college system. So, you know, you get limited money. And so, you know, you have to figure out how to make these nickels and dimes cover all the things that they have to cover. And so, you know, when my children were younger, I had a limit. I'm spending $40 on sneakers. That's it. And if you want to get some sneakers that cost more than 40, between your birthday money, report card money, whatever other money you can, if you want to spend fifty hundred dollars, cool. My limit is forty because as fast as you grow, I'm gonna spend at least five hundred thousand dollars every year just on sneakers. <clears throat> and so you know, so the the question that Sir Royce asked me earlier about examples, of, that's one of the examples. Like, listen, you know, um, it's leather and rubber, so you know, I don't need to be spending with so much money, and it, you know. If somebody has more 
glamorous sneakers than you have. When you take them to the rim, you can just smile on them and go by and lay it up. You know, you don't have to worry about the sneakers ain't going to make you a better play, right? So I don't want to be confused. I want you to be confused by that. And so um, but so we got to make sacrifices. So are there things that I may have wanted to do? Like, you know, one of my friends, you know, him and his partners used to go to Brazil or all over. I ain't going nowhere, man. You know, I, <laughs> I ain't got no money, no time. You know, some people ask me, how much did you date? If you date, you got to have time and money in order to date. And so when my children were really young, I didn't have any time or any money. And so people, how can you get married? And my mother told me, she said, listen, you're going to meet women that may be attracted to you, but they ain't going to be ready for the fact that you got four children. That was absolutely true. And so I would meet women. You got four kids? Oh, oh no, son. You know, we, mm-mm, mm-mm. So, um, so there's going to be sacrifices that have to happen. But I was also really clear that I could not afford to get emotionally out of balance because my children, our children watch us. They know when we're on and when we're off. And so if I was emotionally caught up in some kind of relationship and distracted paying attention to them, they they would know that. And so I think the fact that while it took them some time to recognize how much of an investment is necessary. And so now it's like, yeah, you know, they've, uh, they've made some significant accomplishments. So it's, they realized that the platform, and I would tell them this when they were younger, my job is to build a stage. And I'm going to build a hell of a stage for you to perform on. But you have to perform when you get there. And so I, I am not, no parent is able to get you through all the stuff that you got to face. Some of the stuff you're going to have to handle yourself. But we're going to give you the opportunity to, to do it. And so they would sometimes, and I'll tell them, sometimes we have to fail forward. Even if we don't get it the first time, we'll keep working on it until we do. And so, um, they heeded that message, put the work in, and, you know, overcame all the different issues and challenges, all the stereotypes, all the crazy stuff. And right now, yeah, they're doing all right. Doing all right. Yeah, that's good, man. Uh, Dr. Young, can we, uh, can we put this one in the Hall of Fame, man? What you think, man? I think we got another Hall of Famer right here, man. It's one of my favorites, man. Um, we, we, like, like I said before, uh, me and you have you know, similarities in regards to, you know, having young children and, and separating. Uh, and, and really, uh, I'm still getting my sea legs under me. I'm two years in now. Uh, mm-hmm. I can say uh, I'm still, you know, kind of learning on the fly, man. Just having conversations like this with, you know, dads that's been through it before has been really really impactful for myself, man. So I really appreciate you for sharing your story. Oh, so as a matter of fact, you stepping up there, brother. And, uh, you know, just make sure that they know that you love them, man. And no matter what happens, you're going to be there to support them. And whatever the, whatever the issues are, you're going to make it work. And once they know that, that you got their back, then uh, they'll have nothing else to worry about. Yeah, that was going to be my last question for you, actually. Uh, you got almost, well, 40 years of fathering experience. So I'm really interested to hear what you got to say. But uh, what advice would you give to any dad that might be listening uh, to this right now? Be true to the game. Be true to the journey. I mean, you know, because in reality, it's a it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so, you know, we live in a society that reinforces stuff happen instantly. There are things that take time to develop time to nurture and support and all that kind of thing. And so um, there's going to be things that's going to happen that, you know, won't happen instantly. We have to just, you know, and I had a, I have a um, family member who's recovering alcoholic. And he said, man, you know, bro, if you think about it long-term, it's going to beat you down. Just like people who are recovering addicts and stuff do just go one day at a time. And when he told me that, you know, it helped me because, you know, when your children are really young and you think you got five, 10, 20 more years to go, damn. But if you just go one day at a time, you put some structure in place, you reinforce them, you tell them how much you love them and how much you're going to do everything you can do to make sure that they accomplish things that they're capable of accomplishing, then, you know, I can tell you, brother, 20 years, 30 years later, it's like, yeah, wow, I didn't realize that um, the time goes by so fast, but it does. It does. Yeah. Uh, this has been great. Uh, again, Bill, I do appreciate you, man, for, for jumping on. Uh, Dr. Young, did you have anything else? Any other questions? Uh, yeah. Um, you can, can, you, can you let everybody know where they can get your book? All right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let me hold it up one more time. Bye-bye and the crew. True story of a single black father's journey to redemption. 
You can get it from my website, www.babaslegacy.com. You can also get it on Amazon. Go to Amazon. If you want a signed copy, if you go to my website, send me a note. We'll work out a way for that to happen. Go to Amazon and order it. They will ship it out to you in a matter of days. And there's a paperback copy as well as the Kindle copy. So I hope that you will um, check it out. Most people that have read it have absolutely, you know, found some some pearls in there that have been beneficial. So hopefully that will you know manifest for some of the people who are watching this. Yeah, I'll leave a link to all that in the uh, description below. So yeah, okay. Uh, thanks for sharing, Bill. I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so uh, don't hang up, man. We're gonna chop up for a little bit after this. Okay. Without further ado, for myself, for Sir Race, for Alice, for my prestigious co-host, Dr. Ryan Young, and also for uh, our special guest, Bill Davis. Thanks for listening to WTF Interviews. I'm sorry, welcome to Fatherhood Interviews. Name change. Uh, <laughs> stay tuned uh, for further announcements. Yes, yes, Sir Race here. And I want to thank you again for listening to WTF Interviews. Leave a review as it helps more people like yourself receive the message. Also, consider donating to Welcome to Fatherhood. It's a nonprofit that myself and Dr. Raheem Young created to help dads showcase their superpowers to the masses. You can do that by going to wtfatherhood.org. Again, gratitude and be well. You already are.